good morning again, um, everyone. And we are, I am definitely wishing you all a very happy new year today. Uh, for those of you who are joining us online, uh, you might notice that you're not seeing any slides. Um, that's because we're, we are a little bit short-staffed today. Uh, but I'm just so incredibly thankful to, to preach this message to you all, to be able to celebrate and to start uh, this new year with you all as well. And as we start this new year, I want to uh, preach on one of my favorite verses in the entirety of Scripture, and it talks about God's unconditional love and his unconditional grace. And the thing is, as we start a new year, it's almost like a sacred day for us, right? Uh, because it forces us to kind of look into the past while we also look forward at the same time. And as we look back on the past year, we may see areas of our lives where we might have fallen short, uh, where we might have made mistakes or caused harm to ourselves or others. And during this time, although there's a hope that we are starting a new chapter of our lives, sometimes it feels like hopelessness, shame, or unworthiness just clings on to us uh, like a nagging cough that just won't go away. But the good news today is that Scripture offers us actually a profound hope, a profound freedom rooted in the unconditional love and grace that is found in our God. And recently, as I was rereading uh, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, um, I couldn't help but to notice these themes of unconditional love and unconditional grace. Uh, for those who do, who do not know Dostoevsky, he was a Christian writer who lived in Russia, um, and he always loved to add themes of Christian theology into his novels because he genuinely, he truly believed that only through Christ can peace be found in ourselves and in our society as well. And in Crime and Punishment, we come across a character uh, whose name is Raskolnikov, and he finds himself in a pit of guilt, in a pit of shame, after murdering an old pawnbroker and her sister. And as Raskolnikov, as he was trying to escape from the police, he comes across a young woman uh, named Sonia, who was forced into prostitution to support her sick mother and her younger siblings. Uh, but despite Raskolnikov's strong hatred, his strong dislike towards Sonia, she always listened to Raskolnikov. And she even listened to Raskolnikov as he confessed his crimes to her, that he murdered someone, innocent people. And even despite her own hardships, despite her own suffering with having to feed her younger siblings and to take care of her sick mother, Sonia still showed unconditional love to Raskolnikov. And so when Raskolnikov was finally caught and thrown into prison, Sonia even offers to bear the punishments in his place, saying that she is ready to suffer for him, even with him. And she says this in the book. She says, I want to suffer with you and be with you. I want to suffer for you and be punished with you. I want to be with you in your poverty, in your prison, in your shame. I want to be with you, to be your sister, to be your cross. And it's no mistake that Dostoevsky wanted this woman to portray the unconditional love of Christ. That while Dostoevsky himself was sent into prison and exiled unjustly to a labor camp in Siberia, it is undoubtedly the unconditional love of Christ that sustained him 
as he came to learn that even while he suffered, Christ suffered with him and shared in his burdens. And in the verse we're about to read today, we see a very similar theme of God's own unconditional love and his own willingness to bear the suffering of his people. That as Israel was distressed, God too was distressed, and so he would do everything in his power to rescue them. And so let's take a look at that in our sermon today from Isaiah chapter 63, uh, verses 7 to 14. And this is a passage where Israel is spoken to, or sorry, it's where Isaiah speaks to a shattered and a broken nation living in exile. And so hear these words today from Isaiah chapter 63. And it reads, I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many, many good things he has done for Israel, according to his compassion and many kindness. He said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. And he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people, where he, where, where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand? who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in open country, they did not stumble. Like cattle that go down to the plain, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. And this is how you guided your people to make for yourself a glorious name. And what we see with this passage is that it begins with a very prominent idea of the unfailing love of God. Uh, in the very first verse, uh, we read about the Lord's compassion and his loving kindness towards his people. And I love how the first verse begins and ends with the loving kindness of God. And the nuance of the word kindness in Hebrew is that it doesn't just mean being friendly, it doesn't mean just being considerate. Kindness or more accurately translated as loving kindness, refers to loving actions and acts of grace motivated by a deep sense of loyalty, motivated by a deep sense of a commitment towards a person. And this love is not based on anything that we do or do not do. Rather, it is a love that is freely given and a love that endures forever because it is rooted in a God who is eternally loyal and eternally faithful. But as humans, I think it's easy for us to kind of get wrapped up in the idea that we need to earn our love. We need to earn our acceptance. We may feel like we need to perform certain tasks or achieve certain things in order to be worthy of love. We might feel we need to be holy or faithful enough to God in order to earn his love back. But what we see in this passage is that even before Israel became the people of God, he has already approached them with his unconditional and faithful love. And the wonderful message that we receive as Christians is that the characteristics of God is something that does not change. 
that just as we see the unfailing love of God in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament as well in the passage that we read earlier, where we hear the beautiful and wonderful message that God has loved us first. Before we have even acknowledged him as our Lord, before we have even repented of our sins, God has loved us first. And for me, what I find to be even crazier is that God does this even though he is all-knowing. God knew that his children, the Israelites, were not going to be faithful to him. God knew that they were going to worship other gods and forsake him. And not just the Israelites, but as God examines our lives, he sees how we have turned away from him as well as we seek other things to bring us something that only God can give us. He sees our unfaithfulness. He sees our sins yesterday, today, tomorrow. As we start a new year, he sees all those sins too. But he still chooses to love us first. In our passage, we see that the love that God chooses to demonstrate to his children is an active type of love, that in all of their distress, he too was distressed. God was anxious when dangers and threats came upon his people, and so he would save them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up, and he carried them all the days of old. This is the kind of God we worship, one that shows compassion and kindness towards his people unconditionally, a God who sees our distress and comes into our midst to save us, to redeem us, and to lift us up. And despite his unfailing love for us, it's unfortunate that we don't treat God quite the same way in return. Let's take a look at that in our next point, the cost of rebellion. In our passage, despite God's loving kindness, despite his faithful loyalty to his people, his children repaid good with evil. In our passage, we see that the Israelites in uh, sorry, <coughs> in uh, verse 10, it said that they rebelled against God and they grieved God's Holy Spirit. And by doing so, we're given a powerful reminder, actually, of the cost of rebellion against God. When we turn our backs on God and choose to go on our own way, we inevitably, unfortunately, we must come face to face with our, the consequences of our own actions. It's terribly, it's terribly easy to think that we can do things our own way and still have a relationship with God. But the truth is that our rebellion causes a rift in our relationship where we actively set ourselves up to be the enemies of God. I have once heard an illustration that God's power um, is very much like a wind or a wave. So imagine if you're out in the open waters surfing um, in New York City, and a gigantic wave comes your way. Now, I would hope most sensible people, assuming you could surf, most sensible people, they would ride with the wave as it pushes them closer and closer to the shore until they finally reach safety. And no one, I would hope, would be foolish enough to deliberately surf against the wave, because the only outcome of that is, you know, disaster, as you're just hurled under the sea and thrown about each and every single way. And although this analogy is imperfect, it's accurate enough 
to assess that we often try to believe we can ride against the wave. We think we can live a life that is rebellious to God. And so when we suffer the unfortunate consequences of our own actions, we have to soberly ask ourselves with humility, have I actually brought this upon myself? Have I deliberately set a path for myself against this wave? And the sobering reality that is often uncomfortable to hear is that perhaps we might have. Perhaps we have decided to set our face against God. And so when Israel decided to surf straight into the wave, what they experienced was a crashing wave that nearly destroyed them. They have set themselves up to be the enemies of God, and by doing so, God became the enemies of his own people. But the interesting thing here in this passage we receive in verse 10 is that although God does punish the people for their rebellion and for their sins, it's actually characterized by grief. In verse 10, it reads that as the people rebelled against God, it grieved his Holy Spirit. Although God is capable of destruction and dealing out just and fair punishments, we have to understand that this is actually not very natural for God to do. A few dozen chapters back in Isaiah chapter 28, it actually describes God's judgment and God's anger as God's strange work, his alien task, something that he's not familiar with, something that he does not enjoy doing. Destruction and setting himself as the enemy of his own people is not something God enjoys to do or necessarily desires to do. And what this powerfully shows us is that if God does not desire to do this, then it shows us that repentance is always open. Forgiveness and love are God's familiar work and task. They are the things that he enjoys to do. And if that's the case, then this shows us that when we lay down our pride, when we turn our lives to ride with the wave as opposed to against it, it is only then that we can experience or re-experience God's love and God's power working for his people rather than against them. And the irony of the situation, in Israel at least, is that despite being exiled, despite the people experiencing what it is like to ride against the wave and come face to face with God's judgment, they still continue in their hostility against God. And so to encourage the people to turn back to God, to ride with the wave, Isaiah, he makes a very interesting argument. He doesn't give you some abstract ideas or some cool-sounding theological arguments. He calls the people to do something very simple. He calls the people to remember, to remember the goodness of God. In the midst of their rebellion and turning against God, the Israelites in verse 11 are encouraged to remember the days of old, to reflect on the Lord's faithfulness and his goodness towards his own people. And this remembrance, it's not just a nostalgic exercise, but it's really a way to realign themselves back with God and back with his ways. In the Old Testament, there's always a theme of looking back in order to move forward, which is a lot like what we do during a new year, right? We look back at our past. We look at how we have fallen short in the past year in order for us to move forward. And so by recalling Yahweh's faithfulness in the past, the Israelites can better understand 
how God's enduring love and faithfulness extends to them in the present and even in the future to come. And the stories that they're encouraged to remember are instances where God's power has carried his people into salvation as opposed to exile. They're to remember the power of God who split the Red Sea. They're to remember how God has saved them from the bondage of slavery by fighting on their behalf. That as God from heaven saw his people groaning in Egypt, God too became distressed, and therefore he saved them and redeemed them. They're to remember the times when God led them like cattle in the pasture, where they received rest, where there was abundance, where there was peace, a time where they could be nourished both physically and spiritually and be given the opportunity to grow. They're to remember what life was like when they properly aligned themselves with God. And when they did so, they saw that the end result was tranquility, wholeness, and peace. There was no stumbling. There was no worry because as they experienced the active presence of God working for them, they experienced a God who provided, a God who protected, and a God who fought for them. And I love how Isaiah frames this argument because he asks the people a list of rhetorical questions. He asks them where God is. Where is God? Where is the God who brought them through the sea? Where is the God who has set his Holy Spirit among them? And as the people are called, or actually called to recall and remember the goodness of God, they receive the answer to that question. Where is God? He's still here. God has not left. God's loyalty and faithfulness knows no end. Even when we set ourselves against him, God's love is still enduring throughout this age and throughout the age to come. And so as we as Christians, as we experience the troubles of life, as we experience discouragements, I encourage you, as Isaiah did, I encourage you to remember. To remember the goodness of God in the past. Not to do this just for the sake of remembering, right? It's not just for the purpose of nostalgia, but rather to think, to remember what it is like to realign yourself back with God to experience God's true nature, to understand that just as God has provided for you in the past and fought for you in the past, that God will continue to do so in the present and in the future. And God does this because he has not left us. We might ask, very rightly so, we might ask God where he is, why it feels like his presence has, has you know, left us. But truly, if we're to learn anything today, it is that he has not. He has not left us. Our passage teaches us that in his love, in his mercy, he redeemed his people. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. And that verse applies just as much to the people of God then as it does now. In God's love, in God's mercy, he has redeemed all of us through the blood of Christ. He has lifted all of us up through the Holy Spirit, and God continues to carry us all throughout our lives until our days of old. And so let us today tell of the kindness of God, tell of his mighty deeds which are to be praised. For surely God has done many good things for his people here today, and he does so because of his enduring love for us. And so today I encourage us 
as a new year, let us turn ourselves back to him. Let us remember his love, remember his mercy, and to enjoy his presence once again. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations from this age to the age to come. Amen. Why don't we come together for a time of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your enduring loving kindness. We thank you, Father, that though we might turn our face against you and rebel against you, forgiveness is always an open option to us. And so let us turn to you in repentance, to turn our hearts and minds back to you and to reorient the compass of our hearts. Uh, let us, Lord, know what it is like to once again walk in abundant pastures and by still waters, to experience the unparalleled peace that can only be found in you. Lord, we, we confess we have tried to find life apart from you and has only left a bitter taste in our mouth. And so let us come back to you and seek you once more. And pray all of this in your precious son's name. Amen.